If you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai. Now, I'll give you a few minutes. Take your while. You can use your table of contents if you want. All right, if you would, let's, let's bow together in prayer and ask God to bless the ministry of his word. God of heaven, we are gathered here this morning to hear your voice. For your voice is certainly heard in the scriptures. Give us ears to hear, I pray, and give us the determination to obey what your scriptures tell us, to understand the world by these scriptures. I pray for this people here that this would come alive for them. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I would ask you to follow along as I read this book. The book of Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, 
Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and says, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one, became, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother." On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And so, the reading of God's word, the book of Haggai. I want you to use your imagination and go back with me to a long time ago. It's been a good day, a day of worship and thanksgiving. It's the first day of the month, and you've come to the altar in Jerusalem to witness the monthly sacrifice. You're faithful to the worship of God, and you enjoy it. You work hard. You make a relatively good living, but you sense a gnawing lack of satisfaction, a lack of fulfillment. 
Your work is not as satisfying as you expected. And, and, and you hope that things are going to get better. As you approach the altar for worship, you, you have a vague sense of some old construction now abandoned. It's something of a familiar sight. When you were younger, just before you got married and started raising a family, you were part of a movement to rebuild the temple. But opposition arose, and so the construction trailed off. And that was 16 years ago. But then, life goes on. Recently, though, two prophets by the name of Zechariah and Haggai have been encouraging you and the rest of the people to return to building the temple. And as the congregation gathers around for worship at the altar, Haggai appears. Hear this message, Zerubbabel, governor of the people, and you, Joshua, high priest of Jehovah, and he gestures towards you and everyone else standing there. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. And in your, in your mind, you respond, what is your problem, Haggai? What is your problem? It's just not time. It's just not time to rebuild that, to take on that project. Well, what is Haggai's problem? What is his problem? Why make such a big deal about rebuilding the temple? Why is that such an important issue? That he would be bugging you. That he would be out there preaching along with his partner, Zechariah. Well, if you want to understand God's word to us from this book, you need to grasp four facts. We're going to talk about four things today. Here they are. First of all, know the time. You've got to know the time. Know the people, know the prophet, and know the message. If you get those four things down, we'll have an understanding of what Haggai's problem really is and what that means for us. So here's the first. Know the time. This is 500, about 538 years before Jesus was born, 538 B.C., Cyrus the Great, the Persian emperor, uh, promulgated a decree. He issued a decree. And that decree, which is recorded, by the way, in Ezra 1, permitted the Jewish exiles of Babylon and all those in the Persian Empire to return to what was their homeland, to return to Jerusalem. And the edict says, I want you to go back and build your temple. Now, it's my view that Cyrus sent that out to all peoples <clears throat> And he didn't just tell the Jews to build their temple. He told all the peoples under his, uh, in the empire to go and rebuild their temples, right? I think he was a pagan king who wanted to cover all his bases. Nevertheless, there is this decree that they are to go home to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So a number of Jews made the trek to Jerusalem led by Zerubbabel and Joshua. And the returnees, when they got there, began to clear away the rubble of the old temple, the temple that Solomon built, that unbelievably glorious temple, had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, when he conquered Jerusalem. And so when these people under Joshua and Zerubbabel got back to Jerusalem, they started clearing the rubble from the old temple. And they began, first of all, with the altar. 
And they rebuilt that altar where it once stood, and they began to offer the required sacrifices. And by the spring of the next year, they had begun to build the temple. In fact, what they had done, what they did, was to lay the foundations of the temple. But then, as you heard in the scripture reading, trouble began. Opposition from the surrounding uh, political entities, the surrounding governors arose, and uh, that was opposed to the rebuilding of that temple. They were opposed to it. And so, because of that opposition, the work ceased. And people gradually returned to their private affairs, to doing what they needed to do. They became used to worshiping among the ruins of this once great temple. And the desire to rebuild died out. And it was dead for about 16 years. And then came the year 520 B.C. And Haggai shows up. That's the time. That's what we have to have in our minds. Now you also have to know the people. You also have to know the people. First of all, these people were the right people. They had a great devotion and zeal for God. You need to understand that when Cyrus issued the decree so that the Jews could go home, very few went home. Most of them remained in exile. Very few went home. But in that one generation, they had settled down, they had established themselves, and they were very comfortable and prosperous in their lives. So think of it this way. Imagine the Cohen family coming from Israel to New York City, and they start to work, and they start a music shop. And in 70 years, that's become one of the top 10 retailers of pianos in all of New York City. And the Cohens have children, and they're all grown up, and they have children who are adults now, too. Now, they have this. Their children are grown. They have their own houses, adult children. They are well-established. They are very comfortable. Do you think they would give all of that up to go back to Jerusalem to build a temple and start all over again? You think they'd do that? No. Most of the Jews did not go back because like my Cohen family, they had their businesses. They were well established. And so of all the Jews that lived in exile and who had grown over an entire generation, only about 42,000 of all that entire nation, only 42,000 went back to uh, Jerusalem. Um, And it was these people's, this is what you need to see, it was their devotion to God and zeal for God that caused them to go back to Jerusalem. These were the ones who were zealous. These were the ones who were devoted to God. They chose the dangers and the hardships of that trip to Jerusalem over the comfortable, well-established, prosperous life they had in Babylon. So you see, these were the right people. These people were in the right place. They knew that God had placed his name on that city. They knew that God had said, this is is where sacrifice is required, and it's nowhere else will you offer this sacrifice but in this temple. They were sensitive to God's commands and promises, and they wanted to be in the place of God's blessing. And when the call came, they returned. 
Now, these people also were doing the right work. They wanted to rebuild the temple. They were doing the right work. Now, before they left Babylon, according to Ezra 2, according to Ezra 2, they took a free will offering for the temple. And in that offering, they got 1,100 pounds of gold and three tons of silver to go back. So they were doing the right work. And they had the right reasons. They were devoted to God. They left the comfort, the grandeur, the magnificence of Babylon to take on the danger and difficulties of this trip to a ruined and desolate place. There was nothing to attract them to that land and city. Nothing at all except for the fact of their belief that that was God's holy land, that was God's holy city, and that temple that should be built there was the holy place where they were to meet with him. But what happened? You heard it this morning. They met with opposition. Opposition arose. And so life just moved on, right? Opposition arose, so they turned their attention to their other concerns. Well, if we can't build the temple, we need to move on with life. We need to build our houses, plant the corn, and get established. You see, these people were not rebels. They weren't blatantly breaking the covenant. They weren't doing that. Yet something was terribly wrong. These people, having moved on with life, were now saying, what? The time has not yet come to build the Lord's temple. It's just not right. It's just not right timing right now, okay? Well, not only know the time, not only know the people, but you need to know the prophet, Haggai. Haggai appeared among the worshipers to encourage them back to building the temple. And then, on August 29th, 520 B.C., he made this proclamation. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Now, what's interesting about every one of his sermons, right? All six of his sermons can be exactly dated, and they are in this book. So for the next 15 weeks, Haggai ministered to these people. On August 29th, 520 B.C., he preached his first message, which is verses 1 and 2. He received another word from God on the same day as the first, verse 3, down to verse 11. The third message he preached on September 21st, verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15. He preached his fourth message on October 17th, chapter 2, verse 1. He received another word from God, from Jehovah, which he proclaimed on December 18th, which is chapter 2, verse 10. And then the last message he received, he got on the exact same day, December 18th. You see that in chapter 2, verse 20. And so he preached these six messages. He preached these six messages. And yet we might ask, what's the problem, Haggai? What, what are you so worked up about? What's the problem? And so we have to know the message. We have to know the message. And here it is. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's his first sermon, right? Maybe some of you are going to wait for me to show up and say one sentence and say that's it. But that's all he had that day. He set the stage, didn't he? So we have to not just know the time, know the people, know the prophet. We've got to know the message. What was his problem? What was the big deal? Well, let's think about that. Why must God have this temple? Was Haggai superstitious? If you want God to bless your crops, then you've got to build a temple. And if you don't do that, your crops won't be blessed. You'll keep putting your money in, in, in bags with holes in it. Right? Inflation's going to continue to be bad. Right? Is he superstition saying, let's build, this, let's build this temple and things will get better? Maybe in order for your worship to be acceptable, do you have to obey the Levitical laws just absolutely perfectly? Or is this a religious, a religious technique to manipulate God so we can get his blessings? I mean, all that makes it sound like this God is just like all the other pagan gods. You do his thing and you do this thing and, and he'll bless you. Build the temple, would you? Good grief. Build the temple so you can get your crops back. Is that what's going on? Well, first of all, we have to understand the importance of the temple, especially in the Old Testament. So let's consider that. Turn over to Exodus 29. Exodus 29. Exodus 29, and let's look at verse, starting in verse 44. I will consecrate the tent of meeting. Okay, so he's talking about the tabernacle, the precursor to the temple. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the place of God's dwelling. And they would know that this God had graciously delivered them and that he is indeed their God. So the temple stood for the fact that God had delivered them, a reminder of that, and that he was their God and that he dwelt with them. So the, the temple stood <coughs> also as a reminder of deliverance, much like communion for us. <coughs> it stood to remind them of what God had done on their behalf. It was also the place where he would dwell with them. All right, now look over at Deuteronomy chapter 12. Again, right before they enter the land. Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 7. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. In other words, he's saying, destroy all these places. I don't even want you worshiping me 
in those shrines. Not even the true God in those shrines. Those have to go. You shall worship the Lord your you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. God would place his name on a particular location, and this would be the meeting place between God and man. Nowhere else, only in this one place. This was the meeting place. If you wanted to meet with God, you didn't do it in the hills. You came here, and this is where you would offer your sacrifices. And Solomon's attitude was the exact same way, um, only more developed, if you will, at the dedication of the temple that you see in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. You follow along as I read in verses 27 through 30. Now notice how he describes this temple. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now notice, it was the place of his name. It was the sign of his presence. It was the place of mercy. It was the place of prayer. For God to hear from heaven, you came to this place. And later on, he even says, and, and if they're ever in exile, they will face this place and pray toward it. Right? So God could hear. It was the meeting place be between God and man. It was his where his presence was. And his presence means grace. His presence means grace. So when Haggai said, these people say it's not yet time to build the house of the Lord, God said, you do not want me. That's what God was saying. It wasn't just about this temple. It's the place where you meet with God. You don't want me. That's your problem. You don't want me. The refusal to build the house was a rejection of the offer of grace, the grace of God's presence among his people. This, place of my, this is the place of my presence, but you would rather not have my presence among you. You have more important things to do. You want all the good things of life, right? The crops, the houses, all that. You want all the good things of life, but you don't want me. You don't want me. To refuse to build the house of the Lord 
was at best saying that it did not matter to them whether the Lord was present or not. At worst, it's presuming on God's grace, saying, we want your grace, but we won't use the means of grace. We want the good things you can give us, but we don't want to use the means by which we can meet with you. So these people were not blatantly rebellious. They were spiritually careless. They had drifted into this, this kind of, of um, thinking that, yeah, 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 it's just not time to build the Lord's house. They had drifted. They were spiritually careless. They weren't blatantly rebellious, just breaking all the commandments. They had drifted. They had drifted. Now, here's the deal. God intends the message of Haggai for you. The Bible is written for us today. This was not written so that we could understand the problems of God's people long ago and far away. That's not why it's here. It's not why it's here. First of all, this is the Word of God. And according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, it is intended to teach, to convict, to correct, and to train us in righteousness. And when Paul wrote that, he was talking about the Old Testament Scripture. And so he tends all of this. He intends the book of Haggai to what? Teach you, convict you, correct you, and to train you in righteousness. It's all part of that. And then all of this points us toward our relationship with Jesus himself. We have to see it in that light. If you look at Luke chapter 24, you remember the story where Jesus is walking with these people on the way to Emmaus? You remember that? And one of the most important things that happens in that conversation he had with them was this. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is in this book. It talks to us about our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's think about that for a moment. After all that you've learned now about the book of Haggai and everything that's going on, here's what we need to remember. What is Jesus' name? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. What is the meeting place between God and man now? It is Jesus. The temple was always pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice given once for all, and so we come to God through him, just as they had to go to God through the temple. Jesus is the temple, the meeting place between us and God, the access to God. That's Jesus. Jesus is the sign that God has delivered us through the cross. Jesus is the token that God is our God, and we are his people. So this book is indeed about Jesus and our relationship to him. At least that's what Jesus says. The whole Testament was about him. So the question we need to ask is simply this. How much like those people are we? How much like them are we? You know, has life just moved on for us as well? Are we so concerned with our life 
our homes, our jobs, our children, our careers, even our clothes, that we just don't have time for God, that we just kind of slip away? Do we desire comfort more than worship? It's not like we're blatantly rebellious, but it's so easy to be spiritually careless. Do we desire God in Christ more than anything else? Do we? We want joy, but do we want Christ, the source of that joy? We want change, but do we want Christ, the source of the power for change? Do we want to know Christ in every aspect of his being? Do we really want to do that? I'm always challenged by this verse, Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That sounds good. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Is that what we want? Do we want to become like Jesus in every way? Do we desire the presence of God among us and in our midst? So here's the question I ask. If the prophet Haggai would show up today, would he say anything different than he said then? That's the question we need to answer. And we have to say, what is more important to you? Do your comforts and your career mean more to you than a dynamic relationship with the Lord Jesus? Would you rather be conformed to the sufferings of Jesus than have that job that pays more? That's a tough one. Do you want the grace of God without pursuing the means of grace? His word, the fellowship of believers, the Lord's table, all those things. Do we want his grace, but we don't want to pursue the means of grace? What has God's messenger Haggai said to you this morning? What has Haggai said to you? In the ensuing weeks, we'll find out exactly what God wants from us. But here's the deal, okay? It's not that God is some cruel, distant deity who just demands things from us. Because what he demands from us is always what is good for us. Never forget that when God is glorified, you flourish. We want to glorify God. We want to see his grace manifested. God is always for us and never against us. And so as we proceed through this book, we're going to see how God says to us, do you want me? Do you want me? And then we can see how we ought to answer. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for the fact that it's incisive and can open us up in ways that we never dreamed, that it's living and active, separating that which is inseparable in order that we might know our hearts better than we ever did before. We thank you for the word that lays out the path that trains us in righteousness. And so we pray that you would, in the ensuing weeks, help us to understand your message here that we might glorify you and see your goodness in us. We thank you now in Jesus' name.